Hi, this is Andrew Phillips. Thank you for downloading the Gramier Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions or if you'd like to contact us, check out our website at gramier.com. We'd also love for you to visit with us in a worship service. You're always welcome at Gramier Church of Christ. If you'd like to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 23, we're going to be spending some time towards the end of that chapter. Matthew 23. It is good to see everyone here tonight. As I mentioned earlier, uh, our uh, 1 to 10 mentoring group uh, groups have started. And uh, just to let those of you know who, uh, who maybe had, have forgotten, or if you don't know, one of the things that happens is on Sunday nights, we've tried to provide an intentional way for members of our youth group to get to know and form good relationships with adults uh, for some of the the men in our youth group to be mentors for our young men and our, our ladies uh, here at Graymere to be mentors for our young ladies. And so they have a chance to study together uh, in groups that have some from middle school and high school uh, that are there so they can form those friendships, so they can uh, work through some of uh, the Bible lessons together. And that's just been a really powerful tool and so we're thankful for that. We want to be prayerful about that. Uh, and in the next couple of weeks, we'll also be gearing up for Wednesday night uh, into the city, uh, ministry resuming. And so uh, J.D. may have more needs uh, to let you know about, but there have been a great number of people who volunteered to be part of that. And so uh, all those things that come with the school year getting started again uh, are upon us. Uh, and also we had an outstanding morning this morning. It was uh, incredibly encouraging. I love the Sunday morning when you walk through this door once a year and you see a lot of first graders just lined up in this pew ready to get their Bibles. There's just something special about that. We had 11 that got their Bibles this morning from our shepherds. Uh, and then we were blessed to uh, have the addition of 22 deacons, 22 additional deacons. Now, I have to say, there were families who were present for both. I think there may have been more pictures taken of the first graders than the deacons. And so, I'm sorry, we did get a few pictures of all of our deacons up front, but it's, it's hard to pass up on taking pictures of those first grade students. Uh, but I'm really excited about that for so many reasons. But one is just an indicator of how much uh, will be happening in the future as we have some existing ministries, some that are getting rekindled again and going, uh, and it's just going to be a blessing. And so if you haven't already picked up a sheet that has a list of all of our deacons, uh, and that would be a great thing to put in your Bible. That'd be a great thing to maybe put on your prayer list. You know, maybe once a week, pray for a different ministry uh, here or a different deacon and his family by name. Uh, that'll be really, really special. I'm excited to see what'll happen as as our deacons have these roles in leading our ministry, one of the illustrations I've always loved is to think about, uh, someone once said, if you think about leadership as being the bottom of the pyramid, uh, when you expand the, the base of your leadership, you're expanding the amount that you can build up. And so as we think about uh, the leadership among our deacons as they lead these ministries, that's going to provide us more opportunities to build up and to grow uh, as a congregation. Uh, one of those I've already noticed and been encouraged by, uh, I think it was last week on Wednesday, uh, coming from the yak into the fellowship hall, 
and seeing one of our meal teams for the meal program uh, getting food ready. Uh, that was exciting. It's a reminder that that meals program is back and going, and we're thankful for that. Again, if you'd like to find out more about how to be involved in that, let Doug Williams know or Tim Gordon, uh, but that's just going to be such a valuable resource. And so we're thankful for all those exciting things, and I know that we have been very patient over the last several weeks, uh, staying kind of away from the construction work in the small auditorium, uh, but we're hopeful that it won't be too much longer, that that'll be uh, open and ready to be used again. And so we appreciate your patience with all that. There are a lot of exciting things uh, that are happening, and we want to be prayerful about those. Uh, we want to be thankful for those. Uh, and another one of those to remember is that this Wednesday night will be the conclusion of our summer series. Uh, Chris McCurley, who preaches for the Walnut Street Congregation in Dixon, will be speaking for us and closing out our summer series together. Uh, that's been a, a real blessing, and if you have, for different reasons, been out of town uh, and had to miss some of those, uh, remember that we've got all of those on our YouTube channel, uh, including our, our panel discussions with Graymere members, and so just some really neat uh, spiritual resources there. We've been spending some time on Sunday nights thinking about the 23rd chapter of Matthew, and it's almost been a counterpoint to what we've been doing on Sunday mornings as we've been looking at the Beatitudes. Uh, in Matthew, you have a group of people that Jesus is specifically focused on, and we've referred to this series as the pretenders. We've been thinking about what it means for someone to be acting like uh, there's something they're not. And Jesus does something in Matthew 23 at the end of the chapter. We've been through the first 12 verses, and when we start in verse 13, he does something that is what a prophet often does. Pronounces woes, W-O-E, woes on specific groups of people or specific people. And so if you look through the Old Testament, you see examples of prophets that pronounce woes or oracles on these other nations. A lot of times the people of God would be surprised after the prophet had pronounced woes to all these other nations that he might turn around and say woe to Judah or woe to you and that would sort of take them aback. Well Jesus essentially does the same thing here. He's pointing out in this particular uh, series of woes uh, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And while there are a lot of different ways we could describe what's happened in these chapters, uh, we thought about the first few verses as Jesus highlighting uh, the hypocrites that were among the Pharisees and the scribes. We've thought about the next set of verses, thinking about the performer, people who were doing things to be seen by others. And when we get to the woes, there are a lot of words we could use, but one word that comes to mind would be a, a bully. Someone who is just trying to force someone into doing what they want to do. Uh, we've all had to deal with bullies before, people who wanted their way, and it was their way or no way. Uh, sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we have been those bullies. We've been the people trying to get our way, trying to get what we want. And so one of the things that we're going to see as we look through this series of woes is that Jesus is pointing out that what they're doing doesn't just have an impact on them, but it has an impact on others. 
that trying to get their way and trying to prove their way is right doesn't just affect what they do, but it has ripple effects that uh, are going to affect all kinds of other people. And so we're going to begin in verse 13. And I want to, before we read through this, just uh, point something out to you. If you've got your Bibles open, you may notice that in verse uh, 14, there are brackets around that specific verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Now, anytime you get to brackets like that in your Bible, you may wonder what they're there for. And you might have a note there, uh, or maybe in your translation, there's uh, an asterisk there, and then you go down to the footnotes and you read that. I just want to remind us of what happens when we see that. What we're noticing there is they're trying to find a way to let you know that as we've discovered manuscripts of Scripture, the earliest manuscripts that we have don't have this specific verse right there. Now, one of the things that to me is encouraging as a reminder of biblical inspiration is that this fact that's described there uh, is in the Gospels. You can look over to Mark 12 and verse 40 and see Jesus talk about Pharisees who were devouring widows' homes. Widows were supposed to trust these religious leaders, but they had ways of taking that money. And Jesus says, you're going to receive some serious condemnation. And so as we think about the manuscripts, some of those earliest ones didn't have that verse right there. And so that's what that's letting you know about. I just point that out because I, I don't want us to leave the impression that newer translations are somehow uh, saying, well, I tell you what, we're going to edit this one and we don't like this one as much, so we're putting that in uh, the, the footnotes. Uh, they're just trying to let you know uh, what the textual critics and those who've done research have found. And so tonight we're going to be looking at seven of these eight woes uh, with this specific one, just mentioning it, but already realizing it's certainly biblical. We see it all through uh, the actions that Jesus uh, attacks that same kind of attitude is there, and we see it specifically in the Gospels. But I want us to read beginning in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Now let's just take a breath after all of that and imagine the response that Jesus would have received when he continually used that phrase. Did you see that refrain? Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. First two terms might not have gotten everybody's attention, but when you are saying that third one describes these scribes and Pharisees, it would have gotten a lot of attention. And so I was trying to think about a way we could organize our thoughts tonight and uh, looked at these, specifically these seven we're going to look at. Uh, and I thought of a, of, of a way that to me is helpful, uh, and I wanted to share that with us uh, tonight. Uh, several months ago in our small auditorium class, we went through a study of reading the Bible, and we talked about some of the different characteristics of Scripture uh, and the way in which Scripture is written. And one of those that we spent some time on was you can look at Scripture and sometimes find uh, things that are described as chiasms, as ways in which they would write Scripture in order to emphasize certain things. So just a couple of examples. Uh, the first is Psalm 76 and verse 1. This just gives us a sense of what a chiasm is. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. Now, we, we're familiar with a lot of different ways uh, that Scripture uses literary tools. Like there'll be times when you have uh, in uh, wisdom literature, you'll have parallelism, parallel thoughts. Or you'll have something said and then the opposite of it said. Well, here you could almost break this down into four phrases. And sometimes it's called A, B, B, A. That you have in Judah, that's the first part. God is known. His name is great, which essentially is reinforcing the fact that God is known. And then in Israel. Israel is often a term that's used to describe God's people. And so scholars have looked at that and said, what this is, is this is a way in which uh, they wrote in the ancient world. That you have a chiasm here. In Judah, God is known. His name is great. In Israel. Uh, one of the ones we went over in class, uh, it may be harder to see here, but it comes from Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, when we get the scene of the Tower of Babel, to me, this is one of those uh, where you can see this literary tool here uh, at work. So in verse 1 of Genesis 11, he says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. So you have the whole world and then one language. 
And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. So if we're just sort of charting this out, the whole world had one language, Shinar, and settled there. And then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Come, let's make bricks. Verse 4, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower whose top will reach into the heavens. So let us build a city with the tower. And then in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the Son of Man had built. Now, as we start thinking through that, let's start with the Lord came down. And notice the way that these phrases parallel what we've already read. So he came down to see the city and the tower. Well, we heard about those in verse 4. That the men were building. We heard about that in verse 4. And then in verse 7, God says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. Well, that parallels with the group that said, Come, let us build. He talked about Babel instead of Shinar. That was the new name for it because that's where the Lord confused their language in the whole earth. So I know you won't be able to really see everything in this next slide, but to me, I think this is helpful. Sometimes visuals can really help us. But if you look, you have the whole world in verse 1 and the whole earth is in verse 9. Those are kind of parallel. And then you have one language, but the Lord confused the language. Shinar with Babel. Come, let's make bricks. Come, let us go down. Come, let us build. The men were building. City with the tower, city with the tower. And right in the middle is the phrase, the Lord came down. To me, I think that's interesting to look through Scripture and to see that there might be ways that it's structured that emphasize one specific point. And so you almost see it like an arrow, like it's pointing to a main point. Now, as with anything, uh, if you are looking... For example, if you're, if you're looking to uh, purchase a vehicle and you're thinking about buying a certain kind of vehicle, you start noticing that vehicle everywhere, right? It's just something about the way our minds work. And so maybe we get a little too creative and look for these everywhere in Scripture. But I want to think about a way in which these woes could form that kind of a pattern for us, that kind of chiasm. So let's think about it this way uh, in the next slide. Uh, the first woe we read together was that the Pharisees were shutting off the kingdom. Because of what they were doing, they were keeping people from entering the kingdom. I think we see a parallel, a similar thought, in Woe 7 about people who had murdered the prophets. They're saying, if we had lived back in those days, we would have known what to do. Well, they didn't know what they were doing here. Or Woe number 2, making proselytes or converts But then the end result was that convert uh, was twice as much, Scripture says, a son of hell as they were. In other words, they weren't doing any good. They weren't offering something that was good. And then woe number six, you have these whitewashed tombs. Jesus said, you look fine on the outside, but in the inside, you don't have what's good. Uh, Woe number three was that long section about the oaths and the temple. I think we could compare that in a parallel thought to the woe number five that was about the outside of the cup. Uh, The oaths in the temple were getting so lost in the minutia, they were missing the point. Washing the outside of the cup, if you don't wash the inside, misses the point. And then right in the center was number four that talked about those weightier matters. So again, I know this may be a long way around to get to this, but I'd like for us to look at this series and think about what they were missing here. Well, one and seven 
misses the point of the kingdom. You have examples of people who are supposed to know what they were doing to lead people in the right relationship with God, but they were missing the point. Woe number two and woe number six deal with discipleship. They missed the point of discipleship. Number three and number five, they were missing the point of Scripture. They were getting so focused on the minutia, they missed the larger, more important goal. And then woe number four talks about faithfulness. Now, these are all related and all connected. Maybe this is a helpful way for us to think about it. But let's just walk through these together. And because this seems so distant from us, let's work really hard to think about how this applies to the lives we live today. So let's start with, what were they missing? A couple of these remind us they were missing the kingdom. They were obscuring what God had called his people to do. These are the same individuals that were keeping people from following Jesus. The Messiah had come, was leading them into the kingdom, and yet they were keeping people from doing what God wanted them to do. The irony there is really rich that these people who had set themselves aside to study the law were the ones standing in the way of people to follow Jesus. And the reason for that, at least what we see in Scripture, seems to be they were afraid of Jesus' authority. Jesus spoke as one with authority. And people were listening to him. And he was getting in on their territory. This was their turf. They were the ones who answered the questions. They were the ones you asked if you wanted to know, what does God expect of us? What does God want us to do with the law? And now Jesus is coming along and teaching with authority. And they were so focused on that threat, they were missing the message. They were missing the Messiah that was right in front of them. And then I think it's interesting to look at woe number seven and see that temptation they had. If we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have shed the blood of the prophets. In other words, if we'd been there, we would have listened. We would have known what was being taught. Don't we often think in terms of like that? We, we'll watch a movie about a time in history, and we'll think, you know, if I'd lived then, I would have stood up and done the right thing. If I'd lived during that time, of slavery. I would have stood up and stood for what was right. If I was living in Germany in World War II, I would have stood up and stood for what is right. And sometimes we think harshly about the people who lived before us because we know so much more. Uh, it's what C.S. Lewis once called uh, a chronological snobbery, the idea of, well, because I've come along later, I would have done everything right. And yet, if we know ourselves well enough, we know that uh, none of us are perfect. And we can't imagine what pressures of certain times are like. And there might be those who come after us that look back at things we've done and say, oh, I never would have done that if I'd been in that position. Well, that's what they were doing when they looked back at the prophets. The Pharisees were thinking, well, I never would have lived like that. I would have known what Isaiah was saying mattered. I would have listened to Jeremiah when he prophesied the destruction of the temple. I would have figured all of these things out. Now, again... That may sound very specific, but I was thinking as I read through this text, this to me sounds a lot like what I'm tempted to think about the Pharisees. I'm tempted to think, you know, if I'd lived in the first century, and if Pharisees went around saying I had to do this and this, and these were human traditions, I would have stood up because I would have known better. And yet I wonder sometimes if maybe I'm doing the same thing they were doing. 
If maybe I'm being a, a, a chronological snob saying, well, because I can read Scripture and because I have all this information, well, I never would have made that mistake. We're used to seeing Pharisees as enemies or seeing the term Pharisee being used in a negative way. That's not the way it was in the first century. And I've also got to be careful that I don't start passing judgment on individuals who are trying to obey or trying to do what's right. That I'm not too quick to say, well, that's just pharisaical. If you're wanting to to get real serious about following God or, or get specific about these commands, that's just being a Pharisee. Well, that's not always the case. I need to be careful that I'm not judging other hearts and motives. I can't assume the intentions of others. I need to be thinking about the kingdom. But they were also missing discipleship. He said you travel around and see and land to make one proselyte or one convert. And now we don't often think about the, the Jewish religion as being one that does a lot of, of proselytizing or trying to convert other people. But what this might be referring to is the fact that synagogues were built in town after town after town. And so radiating out from the temple in Jerusalem, there were synagogues established in all kinds of places. And in a sense, that's a way they were uh, practicing not only their faith, but also converting people. And Jesus says, you're doing more harm than good. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus is standing up and telling the established religious leaders, you're doing more harm than good. Can you just imagine how that would have landed? It's no wonder that we're here in Matthew 23, and it's just going to be a few chapters later, we see what they decide to do to Jesus. They could tell the threat that was coming with Jesus' authority, but he's saying you misunderstood discipleship. By the time you get through converting someone, they're going to be worse off than you are. And I think that's a, a sobering reminder for us. It reminds us that religious zeal doesn't always guarantee spiritual truth. You can be zealous for something and not be right about that thing. Right? You, you can be zealous for something, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing what's true. I thought about that just yesterday morning. as uh, woke up early, sort of taking Luke to a, a park so he could get some, some of his run in, some of his, his miles he needed to get in. And we were there at 6.30 in the morning, 6.45 in the morning at a, a park in Lebanon. There was already sort of stationed in these seats by the park a religious group that was ready for a Bible study. Uh, and there were individuals there and what, what they teach about Scripture is not what I believe Scripture teaches, and they've got some other teachings in there too, but they were ready. There was a lot of zeal. There was a, a lot of enthusiasm. They were there. They were ready to talk to anyone. But we understand that it needs to be paired with biblical knowledge. I need to be zealous. I need to be eager to share, but I need to be sharing God's Word. And I thought about that just... Uh, the other day as I was uh, flipping through some different things and came upon uh, an individual who was sort of listing all of these problems with all of these different uh, churches and different places and different people. And this was a very zealous individual who was ready to discount all of these others. And I thought, well, 
You might have a lot of zeal, but I don't know if that's the way God wants us to be dealing with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. We can have all the zeal in the world, but that's got to be paired with biblical knowledge. And also the content of teaching affects the character of the disciples. What's being taught is going to affect the people who are converted by that. So Jesus is saying what you're teaching is so negative that the people that you convert are going to be worse off than you are because all they've known is what you've taught them. That's pretty powerful. And so Jesus was saying that's in woe number two. Woe number six is that phrase with the whitewashed tombs. Uh, Remember when we're thinking about uh, the law of Moses and things that are clean and unclean, uh, tombs were not always grouped together. Sometimes there might be one or two that were by themselves, and you'd need to know because if you touch a tomb, you would be ceremonially unclean. And so one of the things that would happen regularly is those would be whitewashed. It would be a symbol. These are tombs here. And it might look nice on the outside, but it was telling everybody what's inside is unclean. You don't want to touch that. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know what you're like? You're like whitewashed tombs. You walk around and you have a great appearance that you think looks great, but it's really a signal that what's inside is dead men's bones. Again, we can understand why they've responded this way to Jesus' words, but they're powerful for us. It's possible for us to look spiritual without having anything going on inside. And by the way, that's why we need the new life that can only come through Jesus. We can't do that ourselves. We can't stir ourselves up. We can't get ourselves going spiritually. We need what God gives us through Christ. But they're also missing Scripture. Their job was to be set apart to study Scripture. But as some of these woes remind us, they were missing what Scriptures were saying. Uh, There was... Uh, that list of several verses where he's talking about one swearing by the temple and swearing by the gold of the temple. Now that can be kind of strange to us and it's hard to know just exactly what was happening, but maybe this will help us. Uh, If we remember one of the things Jesus points out is that Pharisees had a way of using the law to their advantage. And so one of the things that Jesus points out is they could declare certain things Corbin as dedicated to God. And that meant if what they had was dedicated to God, then they didn't have to use it to take care of their family, to take care of their parents, to take care of those. It was dedicated to God, so it was sort of discounted from that. They had ways of getting around things. Well, when it came to making oaths, they sort of developed ways that some oaths mattered more than others. So you couldn't have an oath that was by the temple, but the gold of the temple, that became something that you could declare an oath of. The same with the altar. And so Jesus is pointing out the fact that they're majoring in the minutiae. They're getting caught up in, well, this is okay, this isn't okay. Apparently, Pharisees were spending a lot of time parsing out which oaths were right and which ones weren't. Jesus says, you're missing the point. You're missing, you're trying to get caught up in, well, what about the gold of the temple and the temple itself? He said, remember, who, who dwells in the temple? Who did you build the temple for? They'd lost sight of the forests or the trees. It's interesting how tempting it is for us to get sidetracked by the smallest things. This past summer at Horizons, one of the things I was in charge of 
uh, were the escape rooms we had one night. Now, when you think of an escape room, if you think of something fancy, and if you think of something that's really well decorated and well put together, you're thinking of a, a real escape room. These were escape rooms that I was in charge of. These were not fancy and decorated and put together, but there were some puzzles that you had to do to get out of the room. And so you had different groups of teenagers come in, and they'd have these different envelopes and puzzles, and you had to do one to get the other envelope. And it was interesting to me how many of the groups would spend a lot of time trying to decide who got to open each envelope, uh, who got to use the pen to write things down, who got to solve this one. I'll work on this. You work on this. And it's timed, and you were wanting to get through the quickest time so you could win, but a lot of groups spent a lot of time arguing about the smallest things that didn't have anything to do with their mission. It's just a human tendency, and that's what was happening with the Pharisees. They were majoring in the minutia. And in that woe number five, Jesus points to cleaning both the inside and the outside of the cup. If someone washed the outside of the cup and then handed it to you to fill in with water and the inside was grimy, and they said, I washed it, you would say, well, I don't know what part of it you washed, but the part that matters to me, the part I'm going to be putting liquid in, that's not clean. In other words, the outside might be clean and shiny, but the inside isn't. And then kind of in the middle here is that fourth one where he said the Pharisees were tithing, were giving 10% of mint and dill and cumin of these uh, small plants and, and herbs. They were, they were going to get down to the, the tenth of all of these little things. And Jesus says, you've neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're not doing justly. You're not treating people right. You're not showing mercy on people who need mercy. You're not being faithful to God, but you've got the tithes down. right? You're scrupulous about all those little things that need to be done. And Jesus doesn't say that tithing didn't matter under the old law, right? He didn't say it wasn't important to do those things. He said you should have done both. We've got to have both in there. The way Micah would describe living for God in Micah 6 and verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What did Jesus say they were neglecting? They were neglecting justice, they weren't showing mercy, and they weren't showing faithfulness. It seems to me we've got similar categories here where Micah is saying, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Jesus is saying the exact things that Micah told you defined what a good life is for a follower of God are the exact things you're casting aside, but you're really focused on that 10%. He said you're straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. Leviticus tells us that there's bugs that swarm were unclean. So if you can imagine in the first century world, if you had a cup uh, and there was a little fly, gnat, something that landed in there, you had to figure out, okay, is this whole cup unclean? How am I going to deal with this? It's not just about getting the fly out of there. You've got to think about, okay, how does this affect whether or not I can drink this? And Jesus is saying, you're so worried 
about that. You're straining out that gnat. It's like you're swallowing a camel. You're missing the big issues that are happening here. It's similar to when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount about a speck and a plank in someone else's eye. Right? That big contrast. It was making a point. There were things they were missing. So before we finish up tonight, we need to ask ourselves the question, is there anything that I could be missing? What is it that I might be missing as we read through this? Again, it's really easy for me to do what the Pharisees were doing and said, if I'd been there, I would have, I would have known who to follow. I would have followed Jesus. I wouldn't have let them tell me all these Sabbath day traditions that Jesus uh, stood up against to point them to the true meaning of the Sabbath day. I would have known what to do. When, when Jesus was saying things that they didn't like, I would have known whose side to be on. I think we need to be careful and say, could there be some things I'm missing? Could there be some things that I'm not reflecting on about the kingdom of God? Are there ways that I'm acting that might discourage people from wanting to learn more about God's kingdom, about His people? Are there some things in my life of discipleship, of modeling myself after Jesus that I need to change? Maybe some ways I'm missing the mark, that I need to use this as an opportunity not to think of myself as being better than the Pharisees, but to think that's a good reminder what I need to be doing. Is it possible that I'm getting so caught up in something specific in Scripture that is still important? Jesus said it's important. But is it possible I'm missing the bigger picture in Scripture? And I need to take a step back. What about when it comes to faithfulness? What about when it comes to living justly, doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God? Are there some areas there that need to be different? There were ways in which the Pharisees and scribes had authority and maybe acted like bullies to those who wanted to believe differently. Jesus is sharing the truth and reminding them of what they were missing. It may be that in reading this tonight, we've been reminded of something that we're missing. Uh, it's a good contrast to think about what Jesus is exalting in the Beatitudes and think about what he's pointing out here in this chapter. Let's leave here tonight resolved not to miss these things. To think about what Scripture tells us about God's kingdom, about being a disciple of His, about, about understanding His Word and living faithfully. It may be that you need to start that process tonight that you need to put Christ on in baptism we would love to celebrate that with you we'd love to talk with you more about it maybe you just want to sit down and study with someone we love doing that as well it could also be that you just need prayers and encouragement let's make sure that we're living a life that seeks to share God's kingdom with others if there's any way we can help you please come as we stand and as we sing together